This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending another 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we talk about the politics of America. And today we will talk about the politics of American prison with corrections expert Gary Maynard, one of the pioneers of modern corrections. He has been the secretary in several states, South Carolina, Iowa, uh, most recently had worked in New Orleans. And I knew him from my days in Baltimore. He hired me there as the as when he was the secretary of the Maryland Department of Corrections. How you doing, secretary? Doing great. Doing great. All right. Thanks for joining us today. So when we talk about uh, American prisons and uh, incarceration, uh, a lot of people always mention a statistic. We have 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its prisoners. Why do you think that is? It's complicated. I think there are a number of reasons. Uh, a lot of them historic. We are a nation of immigrants. We one of the few countries that everybody came from somewhere else, kind of a melting pot. We got, we're a big uh, Second Amendment nation. Uh, we are a prosperous nation. It attracts drugs and organized crime and all those factors. And we're, you know, we, we're like the wild frontier. We, that's the way we came up and that mentality kind of hangs on. One of the things I guess, and, and you've been in so many institutions, I remember the first time going into the Jessup Institution and walking around and thinking, God, if I was ever in here, I would never want to come back. Yet right. we have a national recidivism rate of two out of three. So two out of three people who are living leaving prison are returning within three years. Your recidivism rate in Maryland was, was much better. It was at about 40%. Why the high recidivism rate, do you think? One thing is getting people prepared to leave prison. Uh, if they have drug, drug abuse issues, you know, getting those treated. If they have mental health issues, if they, if they can't read and write, if they don't have a GED, get that education. If they don't have a skill, get that. That's a big part of it. And that's hard to do for everybody. The other part is transitioning out, how they transition out. If they go, if they have arrangements made before they get out, to get a job and to get a place to stay and, and have some support in the community, it's going to be a lot better. So it's hard to tie all that together. And uh, sometimes we don't, we don't do it that well. I would say the United States probably has the better reporting system about recidivism than, than most countries. So ours is probably a pretty honest measure. You were talking about drugs. And when you look at the number of people who are incarcerated for drugs, I remember in Maryland, it was more like one in three, but it really hides the fact that drugs are really driving crime in America. So um, even though people would have been charged with drugs, there's a lot of people who've committed violence and robbery to pay for their drug habits. Uh, what do you think about the drug treatment uh, that's going on in prisons? And particularly, there's this debate over medically assisted treatment, where you would actually use pharmaceuticals or prescription drugs to treat um, inmates? Yeah, well, I, th I think on the first question about drug treatment, there are some pretty classic drug treatments that do make a difference with people. It's about a six-month program that inmates participate in. If that can be followed up in the community, good percentage of the time, people can stay off of drugs. As far as the, the medically assisted, uh, it used to be uh, antabuse for alcohol, used to methadone for drugs. 
Now it's the uh, other drug they're using now. Uh, it's Suboxone. Suboxone. Yeah. And yeah. From what I understand, it's not addictive. So I, I support those those programs. I worked with anti-abuse methadone years ago uh, as, as a substance abuse counselor and working with alcoholics. And and it, it works with them. I'm not a, certainly not opposed to it. I guess one of the concerns with Suboxone when we were uh, with Marilyn is that it becomes a black market. So the methadone is interesting because it can't be transferred. You swallow it. But the Suboxone, um, there was always a concern that, you know, it could be, you know, kind of um, sent you know, sent to sent to someone else or given to someone else. Um, have you seen that uh, be an issue out there? I have not. Yeah. Not. I mean, as long as it's prescribed, I don't think there would be a market for it. Yeah, it's interesting too, and you may be aware, I think one of the more promising drugs is Vivitrol. So I know in Maryland we were given inmates and basically it kind of acts as a manhole cover on your brain so the heroin can't affect you. And the idea is to frustrate the addict. So uh, yeah. they would give it to you a couple of shots before you leave and then a couple of shots in the community. I think the downside is that it's really expensive and uh, how much is the expense for drug treatment how much does that play in it uh i'm not sure when we were when i was in new orleans with the jail we used vivitrol and a lot of uh i was reading a lot of research about vivitrol and it seemed to be <clears throat> well accepted and well used so it must not have been too expensive because a lot of different systems were using vivitrol that was pretty much the uh, the best product to use i i think the expense is really small compared to if you can keep one person off of drugs, keep them out, keep them from committing crimes, keep them from creating more victims, uh, I think it's well worth worth the cost. And uh, you have been a secretary or you've worked in, in two of America's most violent cities, which is New Orleans and Baltimore. And both of them have, I think, made the list of murder capitals at one point or another. What do you see as the similarities of, of two cities that are violent like that? Obviously, the drug trade, organized crime, the drug trade, a lot of a lot of people, you know, back when the African-American population was rising, crack cocaine, you know, that was, that really impacted our system. Uh, now it's uh, other drugs that, that affect, you know, opioids that uh, affect the white population. As a matter of fact, I was just reading about the percentage of African-American inmates in prisons going down, the percentage of white inmates going up, primarily driven by those drugs those issues. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because in our women's facility in Maryland, and you may notice, it, 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 I would say 15 years ago, it was uh, 80% um, African-American black women. And now it's 52% white women, you know, 48% black. And, and so it is that opioids that, that is driving, um, that is driving that. And, uh, one of the things I noticed too, was just very harsh sentences. I remember being in a knitting behind bars. Uh, so these guys were knitting and it was kind of funny because you have these guys, are, you know, tattoos, real tough and Hey, knit one pearl too. You're doing it wrong. You know? So, but I met this really sweet guy, big guy, and uh, I looked him up, what he was doing. He was doing 25 years for robbery. And I thought, what the heck? Did he rob the Hope Diamond? I mean, 25 years for robbery. Are you seeing harsh sentences? Is that a, a part of the, the trouble we have right now? It has been. It really, uh, in the years past couple of decades, it really drove the population up. I think we we still see some pretty pretty harsh sentences for drug crimes and they need to take into account what you just mentioned earlier about 
crimes that uh, occur and drugs aren't mentioned in the sentence, but they were burglarizing to get drugs or burglarizing or robbing to get money to buy drugs, or they were high when they committed the crime. So there's all of those issues dealing with drugs that are just so prevalent in the crime population. So it's it, it drives, it certainly drives drugs and mental health issues drive the prison population. And there seems to be, I'm glad you men- mentioned mental health, because there seems to be a feeling that we are warehousing the mentally ill in prisons, which puts another burden on the correction system because they've got to provide mental health treatment. Um, what do you see in the in the prisons in mental health treatment? What would you like to see? Probably work, working in Oklahoma, South Carolina, Iowa, and Maryland. Maryland had the, the most comprehensive uh, drug treatment programs that started in the prisons and were carried out in the community, primarily Baltimore, because uh, the director of Baltimore Me- uh, Medical Director of Baltimore, right. and then later, later worked for Governor O'Malley as the, as the state uh, medical director, uh, Josh Sharfstein. He, when I talked to him about drug abuse problems in the prisons, he said what I'd been trying to hear from other people for all of my career. He said inmates with mental health or drug problems are a public safety issue. He said it's my issue as a state medical director. And that's the first time I'd heard that in any state. And we worked out some model programs where we would get information about inmates when they came in about their drug problems and treatment. We would continue that treatment. And then when they were released, we contacted the people they're going to be released to. This is in Baltimore where the bulk of our population came from. And we would release them to those people and they would know what treatment that inmate had received in prison. We continue that and there was great continuity. And that's part of what helped us drive drive down the recidivism rate. And the other thing um, I think that is interesting, and you mentioned, um, you know, the, the blacks being particularly affected by the crack uh, epidemic, Ronald Reagan, you know, making some pretty tough laws, Bill Clinton coming in a few years later, making the three strikes you're outlaw. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I noticed in taking calls from inmate families was that it wasn't as much about race as it was about poor. I talked to a family um, I could tell they were poor if there was an inmate's family. So they could be from a rural area. And and did you see that too? Was that the distinction you saw? Absolutely. Absolutely. And people do, they miss the fact that it is, is an issue of poverty because a large number of the white inmates in prison are poor. <laughs> and a large number of minorities, Hispanic, African-American, they come from poor situations, poor families. They didn't have didn't have the benefit that a lot of people on the streets have now. So I believe it's more a question of poverty than it is of race. If you're black and poor, chances of going to prison are pretty good. If you're white and poor, uh, your chances are better than somebody who has some resources. Right. And, um, you know, it was an interesting book, and I don't know if you had a chance to read it. It was called The Master Plan. And it was a guy from, um, I think he was in Dorsey Run, um, one of the prisons down there. And he was basically saying that, you know, uh, a 10-year sentence is is pretty much a good average. So it takes about three years for an inmate to get acclimated. And then by the time the 10th year rolls around, I know Germany has a maximum of 20 years. Um, and it seems like the statistics are showing that those who have served longer, who get out, have a better chance of not going back. But the states are actually turning to these programs where they're letting out what they call nonviolent 
uh, low level offenders. Um, what's your thoughts on the on and whether there should be a maximum on a sentence? I, there, there's a lot of talk that there should be no life sentences. Some of the tr- some of the states are going that way. What's your thoughts on the sentences and kind of where they should be? Before I address that, let me mention one thing that's really concerning now, and it's happening kind of nationwide, and that is inmates low-level nonviolent inmates who were released during the COVID. They're talking about bringing those back into prison now, which I think is horrible because if they were nonviolent and they were released and they've been out for a year, year and a half and not creating problems, not committing new crimes, it will destroy them to bring them back in. And I think as long as they're making it, they should leave them out. But I just hear talk about the Bureau of Prisons doing that in other states, and that that is going to be terrible. But I I think on sentencing, there's theories about the sentence should fit the crime and things like that. And so you have to take into account first offense, second offense, third offense. You know, it has to, and if this is a, a crime of violence, you know, that has to that has to get some punishment to give the victim some family, some satisfaction. I don't think we would ever see where we'd have a maximum sentence like Germany or some other other countries. I have I've read about some of the European Scandinavian countries and how they how they sentence and how they how they operate the criminal justice system. And there's no comparison. If you look at the Scandinavian countries, which we're comparing with, there's no comparison with the population and the and the environment and the sort of the personality of that country is totally different, totally different. And I think mm-hmm. it needs to work based on our population here, based on our history. Uh, but I think the punishment ought to fit the crime. I think it when they give three life sentences, you know, they're really sending a message that doesn't do anything except keep the person out of society. Part of lengthy sentences or longer sentences is the fact that inmates, when they come to prison, they are immature. It takes them longer to mature, but I've seen a lot of inmates that aged out or got mature in prison, decided they didn't want to live a life of crime anymore and changed their behavior. They just they just got older and mature. There's I've always said I could go into any prison or jail and I could pick 20% of that population, set them out, let them go. You'd never hear from them again. There, there are people who, maybe they deserve some punishment, but you could take them out now and they're not going to commit any more crimes, but they're going to stay there because they had a long sentence. Yeah. Why is that? Why, why wouldn't we be able to do something like that? I mean, uh, it's interesting because in, in, in children, they say you could tell by eight years old what children, you know, what, what child is going to be difficult. They haven't had mentors. They haven't had. Why, why wouldn't we be able to say, OK, let's go through and review these people and see what's going on? We, we should should be able to. A, a state could probably do that, working with the paroling authority in that state and working with the governor's office and working with the legislature. You could probably do that. You could probably set it up so that you had some discretion to release inmates, but that's that's not the norm. And we get to that. You've dealt with the governments, and so the politicians are very much involved in this thing. We talked about crack cocaine and, you know, Reagan coming down hard. And I was recently in Savannah, Georgia, and they had a prohibition museum. I thought, why is there a prohibition museum in Savannah, Georgia? And the guy said, Jerry, we're a drinking town with a history problem. <laughs> but how difficult is it dealing with politicians? I mean, you know, here these these they're very much knee jerk reaction. They don't know anything about corrections or for the most part, criminal justice system. But they they impose these rules that you have to follow. How do we 
I guess you can't take politics out of it. I remember reading, you know, Johnny Cochran, who is probably the most famous defense attorney in our generation for, you know, representing O.J. Simpson and, and O.J. Simpson being found not guilty. He even pushed harsher sentence when he was running as a prosecutor. How do we take, can't take politics? How do we reduce politics? In thinking about that, I have never, I've never had the politics impact me to where I couldn't do my job. So there, there have been legislators in each of the four states who have proposed legislation that would really hurt corrections. I've always been able to go talk to them, get them to amend it, get them to change it, or even drop it. A lot of them say, you know, I had to put this up just for the people back home. You know, they, they like me to take a tough on crime stance. So a lot of times they know it won't pass. So I, I never had any legislation that passed that really hurt really made it impossible for me to do my job. Now, a lot of people would say, you know, we can't do our job because of this, but that's that's never been the case with me. And I've had politicians who have tried to coerce me to fire some particular employee or to let a particular inmate uh, transfer or to hire a certain employee. And I have always told them uh, if they want me to hire somebody that, that was not fit, I would just say, Senator, you have, uh, you want me to hire this person? If we do, and if he if he screws up and somebody gets killed, I'm going to tell everybody yep. it was your idea. Yes, and they, yes. they back off. Yeah and, yeah, and I had that when I was a warden. I had it as a director, but it never was a problem. I never hired anybody I didn't feel comfortable with, and never fired anybody I didn't want to fire. And there was never any legislation that that really impacted me to a point to where it. it tied my hands or I couldn't do my job. So one of the things you you were very famous for and recognized for was the programs that you brought into prisons. And uh, we had the American Vet Dog Program in which, uh, you know, uh, inmates were raising dogs for yeah. veterans. And uh, that was an amazing program. I remember being in there and seeing a, a guy who was doing 35 years for a vicious murder, murder and to see him, you know, have that dog and then just the love he had for that dog and realizing that he did not have that kind of relationship with a human being, which is why he would, he would, you know, that was the first time experience love. We had the horse program, which was another great program where uh, inmates learned to take care of horses. And, and that was always funny because, you know, the inmates are used to controlling things and they get this two-ton thing and they think they're going to pull it around the barn and this thing starts yanking them and they're like, whoa. And, and it taught them a very big lesson, which is, hey, you're not in control. So um, tell me about those programs and, and how well, important you think they are. I was very proud of the vet dog program. Uh, as a veteran and seeing inmates in prison who were veterans or who were got into the military, got dishonorable discharges. So when that program option was given to us, we, we jumped on it. And at one time when I was there, we had five different prisons that had that program, which was more than almost the rest of them in the country. We were like the, the model working with the dogs, working with the wounded warriors. Uh, it gave them an opportunity to sort of give back to, to the military that they didn't do before. I've, I've seen, you know, you, you talked about that one one case. I, I saw a, a guy spoke at uh, one of the programs out in Western Maryland, uh, vet dogs, but he had a little puppy. He weighed about 300 pounds, but had a little puppy. And he was talking about being in Vietnam, and dishonorable discharge and all that. And he said, but we said we would never leave anybody behind. And we did. And he started crying and then, and, and, 
And he said, and this is one way that I hope I can make up. There was a book written once by a man who said he'd worked in prison all his life. He got out and he, he was very frustrated. He wrote a book entitled uh, Nothing Works. I was working in correction. It really kind of hit me like, what do you mean? I've seen a lot of things work. But he said, you know, you do all this stuff. It's a waste of time. So I developed my own theory. This was years ago, 30, 40 years ago, that anything might work. I've seen inmates who, who lost a mother while they was in prison change their behavior. I've seen inmates who lost children. I've seen inmates who, who get stabbed to an inch of their life change their thinking. I've seen religious conversion. I've seen working with animals. I've seen inmates in all kinds of programs. So I, my theory was try anything. Anything might work. They, they like to be able to give back. I know they yeah. do. And uh, you were talking about, we were talking about a, a little bit about correctional officers and you, you remember, um, you know, we've had issues at the Baltimore jail and, and I was, when I was there and, and after you left, they had indicted, I think 200 different, it was just not just officers, but officers, family members, and people that were involved in smuggling and things like that. What, uh, I mean, correctional officers have a difficult job in the sense that they are why watching the people that society don't want to deal with. How do we cut down on that kind of corruption? How do we, um, how do we improve their work environment? That's a good question. As you know, when we, we had questions about corruption at Jessup, I talked to the FBI and the U.S. attorney, and we, we put together a task force and worked for two years working the drug smuggling and, and indicted, I think, six correctional officers at the end of that two years. And then I asked the FBI, what now? He said, there may be some corruption in Baltimore jail. And I said, I know there is. Let's go after it. So we went to Baltimore jail and did a year and a half. And I think we indicted six or so out of that. But we really, in working with the police commissioner and U.S. attorney and the FBI and the state police, we really got a handle on the corruption in the Baltimore jail. And it impacted uh, Baltimore City and the crime rate, murder rate went down Baltimore City. There was uh, the time period there when we could see, obviously, the drugs were coming to Baltimore City and the jail and back out. The same yeah. people were doing yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, we got a handle on it at that time. But it's very difficult. And people people use it as an excuse sometimes to say, well, we can't get good cracks from officers. You know, we don't pay them enough or they're not educated enough and all that. In my opinion, and I've worked in five different states and in New Orleans, I always had a lot of respect for the people that work in those positions because it's extremely difficult. They are, they are there eight hours a day with, as you said, society's castaways. And they get, they get, uh, they get taken by some of those. An inmate will ask a small favor, and then that small favor comes to a bigger favor. And then next thing you know, it's bringing in drugs. And if the officer says, no, I can't do that. Well, you've already done things. I'll get you fired for the other things you've done. So the officer does it. This is the last time. Next thing you know, it's bigger and bigger. So it is a tough, tough environment, but good training. I mean, we, we select from a population. You get people in. You, you pick ones that have the best character you can get, good training, good first-line supervisors, good mid-management, good leadership at the, at the warden level, and then you get – 
directors and people who hold people accountable, but have set standards uh, and take responsibility for it. And, and you can get a handle on it. I mean, it's not impossible. You can get a handle on the corruption and anything. It, anything you take responsibility for, you have power over. So people that say, I can't do, you can't do this because we didn't get funded for it. That's not true. Yeah, and, and, and it's good and interesting that you talk about funding. So we've always had this argument, and especially with the media calling in, and they would say, hey, you know, you didn't, they don't have any education. The inmates don't have any uh, drug treatment. They're having and, you know, and I, I, my answer was, look, as a department, the role is to keep the public safe. That is the main right. role yeah. of the department. If they get education, if they get um uh, drug treatment, if they, that's a, that's a plus. Yeah, Jerry, I, and I was, I was going to give an example of when, as they were cutting our budget, I'll give a couple of examples. One is in the drug treatment. We had a drug treatment contract that would treat 500 inmates a year. I went and talked to the people that held the contract and I said, is there any reason this has to be 12 months? I said, could it be six months? And they said, we can do it effectively in six months. And I said, okay, we'll change that to six months. Just like that, we increased the number of inmates involved in drug treatment, 500 to 1,000. We went to education. Uh, I looked at the number of students in class, and some had 25, some had 15. I asked, why are there 15 in these classes? Well, the fire marshal said, that's all we could have. So I had every warden, every principal meet with every fire marshal and see what number of inmates they could get in class. I went to Hagerstown in one case, talked to the fire marshal, and I said, well, they said we could only put 12 in here. The fire marshal said, I didn't say that. You can put 25 in this class. So we increased the number of students at no cost. We just probably 50% increased. And that's, that's just from taking responsibility and saying, doesn't make a difference. We don't get more funding. We got to do it. So how how do we do it? We figure it out. And and it's interesting. The funding question is that yeah, I, I get the feeling that really everything is driven by the constituents, by the public, and it seems like Americans in general, even though many would profess to be religious or Christian, they seem to have an eye for an eye mentality in the sense that there's extra in the budget. They'd rather see it go to school than to prisons. Um, do prisons need more funding? When I was in Oklahoma, we were getting funding for corrections. The senator who's in charge of the education committee called me in her office and said, you quit going after our money. We need an education. And I said, Senator, if you if education will do their job, I will give you money because the better job you do in preschool and first grade and second grade, you'll solve a lot of these problems that I have. We get people who come into prison, can't read and write. Yeah. And some of them finish high school and don't have a GED, but they yeah. sit there. So I think it's a weak excuse to say we can't do our job because we don't have the funding. I think people just have to be resourceful and say, this is our responsibility. This is what we've money we've got. How are we going to make this work? Thank you so much for being with us, Secretary. Today. I appreciate it tapping into your uh, your wisdom and your knowledge of the issue. And I know it was uh, Mother Teresa who said, if you can't feed a 
million just feed one and you've helped a lot of people with your programs and individuals whose lives are better because of you so thanks for your uh thanks for your help yeah thank you for having me be back next week with another thrilling edition of the retail politics podcast want to thank our executive producer mike gugat our technical producer brad maybe the wizard of pods dave our announcer and our uh, voice talent john one take terzis and uh, until we meet again, please always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.